Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we are finishing The Wretched of the Earth, technically the very slightly longest book we've done so far. We're finishing off the tail end of a chapter and then going right into the brief conclusion of this book. As a refresher, the chapter as a whole has talked about the mental health of people in the Algerian war on both sides, how they are affected by everything happening, and how that manifests psychologically and affects people. In particular, talking about the psychology of the natives and how it is racialized to undermine them as a people in general and pathologize their behaviors as being inherent and biological rather than being responses to circumstance. So, let's finish off that chapter and the book. The important theoretical problem is that it is necessary at all times and in all places to make explicit, to demystify, and to harry the insult to mankind that exists in oneself. There must be no waiting until the nation has produced new men. There must be no waiting until men are imperceptibly transformed by revolutionary processes in perpetual renewal. It is quite true that these two processes are essential, but consciousness must be helped. The application of revolutionary theory, if it is to be completely liberating and particularly fruitful, exacts that nothing unusual should exist. One feels with particular force the necessity to totalitize the event, to draw everything after one, to settle everything, to be responsible for everything. Now conscience no longer boggles at going back into the past, or at marking time if it is necessary. This is why in the progress made by a fighting unit over a piece of ground, the end of an ambush does not mean rest, but rather is the signal for consciousness to take another step forward, for everything ought to keep pace together. Yes, the Algerian of his own accord accepts the verdict of the magistrates and the policemen. Footnote 1. So we had to take the Algerian criminality which was experienced on the narcissistic level as a manifestation of authentic virility and place the problem on the level of colonial history. For example, we had to show that the criminal tendencies of Algerians in France differed fundamentally from those of the Algerian who were submitted to exploitation, which was directly colonial. A second thing ought to be noticed. In Algeria, Algerian criminality takes place in practice inside a closed circle. The Algerians rob each other, cut each other up, and kill each other. In Algeria, the Algerian rarely attacks Frenchmen, and avoids brawls with the French. In France, on the other hand, the emigrant creates an intersocial and intergroup criminality. In France, Algerian criminality is diminishing. It is directed especially at the French, and its motives are radically new. A certain paradox has helped us considerably in demystifying the militants. It has been established that since 1954, there has almost been a disappearance of crimes in common law. There are no more disputes, and no longer any insignificant details which entail the death of a man. There are no longer explosive outbursts of rage because my wife's forehead or her left shoulder were seen by my neighbour. The national conflict seems to have canalized all anger, and nationalized all affective or emotional movements. The French judges and barristers had already observed this, but the militant had to be made conscious of it. He had to be brought to understand the reasons for it. 
it remains for us to give the explanation. Should it be said that war, that privileged expression of aggressivity which is at last made social, canalizes in the direction of the occupying power all congenitally murderous acts? It is a commonplace that great social upheavals lessen the frequency of delinquency and mental disorders. This regression of Algerian criminality can thus be perfectly explained by the existence of a war which broke Algeria in two, and threw onto the side of the enemy the judicial and administrative machine. But in the countries of the Maghreb, which have already been liberated, this same phenomenon which was noticed during the conflicts for liberation continues to exist, and even becomes more marked once independence is proclaimed. It would therefore seem that the colonial context is sufficiently original to give grounds for a reinterpretation of the causes of criminality. This is what we did for those on active service. Today, every one of us knows that criminality is not the consequence of the hereditary character of the Algerian, nor of the organization of his nervous system. The Algerian war, like all wars of national liberation, brings to the fore the true protagonists. In the colonial context, as we have already pointed out, the natives fight among themselves. They tend to use each other as a screen, and each hides from his neighbor the national enemy. When, tired out after a hard 16-hour day, the native sinks down to rest on his mat, and a child on the other side of the canvas partition starts crying and prevents him from sleeping, it so happens that it is a little Algerian. When he goes to beg for a little semolina or a drop of oil from the grocer, to whom he already owes some hundreds of francs, and when he sees that he is refused, an immense feeling of hatred and an overpowering desire to kill rises within him, and the grocer is an Algerian. When, after having kept out of his way for weeks, he finds himself one day cornered by the Cade who demands that he should pay his taxes, he cannot even enjoy the luxury of hating a European administrator. There before him is the Cade who is the object of his hatred, and the Cade is an Algerian. The Algerian, exposed to temptations to commit murder every day, famine, eviction from his room because he has not paid the rent, his mother's dried-up breasts, children like skeletons, the building yard which is closed down, the unemployed that hang about the foreman like crows. The native comes to see his neighbor as a relentless enemy. If he strikes his bare foot against a big stone in the middle of the path, it is a native who has placed it there. And the few olives that he was going to pick, X's children have gone and eaten in the night. For during the colonial period in Algeria and elsewhere, Many things may be done for a couple of pounds of semolina. Several people may be killed over it. You need to use your imagination to understand that. Your imagination or your memory. In the concentration camps, men killed each other for a bit of bread. I remember one horrible scene. It was in Oran in 1944. From the camp where we were waiting to embark, soldiers were throwing bits of bread to little Algerian children who fought for them among themselves with anger and hate. Veterinary doctors can throw light on such problems by reminding us of the well-known peck order, which has been observed in farmyards. The corn which is thrown to the hens is in fact the object of relentless competition. Certain birds, the strongest, gobble up all the grains, while others who are less aggressive grow visibly thinner. 
Every colony tends to turn into a huge farmyard, where the only law is that of the knife. In Algeria, since the beginning of the War of National Liberation, everything has changed. The whole foodstocks of a family or a mekta, footnote 2, may in a single evening be given to a passing company. The family's only donkey may be lent to transport a wounded fighter, and when a few days later the owner learns of the death of his animal, which has been machine-gunned by an airplane, he will not begin threatening and swearing. He will not question the death of his donkey, but he will ask anxiously if the wounded man is safe and sound. Under the colonial regime, anything may be done for a loaf of bread or a miserable sheep. The relations of man with matter, with the world outside, and with history are in the colonial period simply relations with food. For a colonized man, in a context of oppression like that of Algeria, Living does not mean embodying moral values or taking his place in the coherent and fruitful development of the world. To live means to keep on existing. Every date is a victory. Not the result of work, but a victory felt as a triumph for life. Thus, to steal dates or to allow one's sheep to eat the neighbor's grass is not a question of the negation of the property of others, nor the transgression of a law, nor lack of respect. These are attempts at murder. In order to understand that a robbery is not an illegal or unfriendly action, but an attempt at murder, one must have seen in Kabylia men and women for weeks at a time going to get earth at the bottom of the valley and bringing it up in little baskets. The fact is that the only perspective is that belly which is more and more sunken, which is certainly less and less demanding, but which must be contented all the same. Who is going to take the punishment? The French are down in the plain with the police, the army, and the tanks. On the mountain, there are only Algerians. Up above, there is heaven, with the promise of a world beyond the grave. Down below, there are the French, with their very concrete promises of prison, beatings up, and executions. You are forced to come up against yourself. Here we discover the kernel of that hatred of self, which is characteristic of racial conflicts in segregated societies. The Algerian's criminality, his impulsivity, and the violence of his murders are therefore not the consequence of the organization of his nervous system, or of characterial originality, but the direct product of the colonial situation. The fact that the soldiers of Algeria have discussed this problem, that they are not afraid of questioning the beliefs fostered among themselves by colonialism, that they understand that each man formed the screen for his neighbor, and that in reality each man committed suicide when he went for his neighbor. All these things should have primordial importance in the revolutionary conscience. Once again, the objective of the native who fights against himself is to bring about the end of domination. But he ought equally to pay attention to the liquidation of all untruths implanted in his being by oppression. Under a colonial regime, such as existed in Algeria, the ideas put forward by colonialism not only influenced the European minority, but also the Algerians. Total liberation is that which concerns all sectors of the personality. The ambush or the attack, the torture or the massacre of his brothers, plants more deeply the determination to win, wakes up the unwary and feeds the imagination. When the nation stirs as a whole, the new man is not an a posteriori product of that nation. 
Rather, he coexists with it and triumphs with it. This dialectic requirement explains the reticence with which adaptations of colonization and reforms of the facade are met. Independence is not a word which can be used as an exorcism, but an indispensable condition for the existence of men and women who are truly liberated. In other words, who are truly masters of all the material means which make possible the radical transformation of society. Conclusion Come then, comrades. It would be as well to decide at once to change our ways. We must shake off the heavy darkness in which we were plunged and leave it behind. The new day which is already at hand must find us firm, prudent, and resolute. We must leave our dreams and abandon our old beliefs and friendships from the time before life began. Let us waste no time in sterile litanies and nauseating mimicry. Leave this Europe, where they are never done talking of man, yet murder men everywhere they find them, at the corner of every one of their streets, in all the corners of the globe. For centuries, they have stifled almost the whole of humanity in the name of a so-called spiritual experience. Look at them today, swaying between atomic and spiritual disintegration. And yet it may be said that Europe has been successful inasmuch as everything that she has attempted has succeeded. Europe undertook the leadership of the world with ardor, cynicism, and violence. Look at how the shadow of her palaces stretches out ever further. Every one of her movements has burst the bounds of space and thought. Europe has declined all humility and all modesty, but she has also set her face against all solicitude and all tenderness. She has only shown herself parsimonious and niggardly where men are concerned. It is only men that she has killed and devoured. So, my brothers, how is it that we do not understand that we have better things to do than to follow that same Europe? That same Europe where they were never done talking of man, and where they never stopped proclaiming that they were only anxious for the welfare of man. Today we know with what sufferings humanity has paid for every one of their triumphs of the mind. Come then, comrades, the European game has finally ended. We must find something different. We today can do everything, so long as we do not imitate Europe so long as we are not obsessed by the desire to catch up with Europe. Europe now lives at such a mad, reckless pace that she has shaken off all guidance and all reason, and she is running headlong into the abyss. We would do well to avoid it with all possible speed. Yet, it is very true that we need a model, and that we want blueprints and examples. For many among us, the European model is the most inspiring. We have therefore seen in the preceding pages to what mortifying setbacks such an imitation has led us. European achievements, European techniques, and the European style ought no longer to tempt us and to throw us off our balance. When I search for man in the technique and the style of Europe, I see only a succession of negations of man and an avalanche of murders. The human condition, plans for mankind, and collaboration between men in those tasks which increase the sum total of humanity are new problems which demand true inventions. Let us decide not to imitate Europe. Let us combine our muscles and our brains in a new direction. Let us try to create the whole man, 
whom Europe has been incapable of bringing to triumphant birth. Two centuries ago, a former European colony decided to catch up with Europe. It succeeded so well that the United States of America became a monster, in which the taints, the sickness, and the inhumanity of Europe have grown to appalling dimensions. Comrades, have we not other work to do than to create a third Europe? The West saw itself as a spiritual adventure. It is in the name of the spirit, in the name of the spirit of Europe, that Europe has made her encroachments, that she has justified her crimes and legitimized the slavery in which she holds the four-fifths of humanity. Yes, the European spirit has strange roots. All European thought has unfolded in places which were increasingly more deserted and more encircled by precipices. And thus it was that the custom grew up in those places of very seldom meaning man. A permanent dialogue with oneself and an increasingly obscene narcissism never ceased to prepare the way for a half-delirious state, where intellectual work became suffering, and the reality was not at all that of a living man, working and creating himself, but rather words, different combinations of words, and the tension springing from the meanings contained in words. Yet, some Europeans were found to urge the European workers to shatter this narcissism and to break with this unreality. But in general, the workers of Europe have not replied to these calls, for the workers believe, too, that they are part of the prodigious adventure of the European spirit. All the elements of a solution to the great problems of humanity have, at different times, existed in European thought but the action of European men has not carried out the mission which fell to them, and which consisted of bringing their whole weight violently to bear upon these elements, of modifying their arrangement and their nature, of changing them, and finally of bringing the problem of mankind to an infinitely higher plane. Today, we are present at the stasis of Europe. Comrades, let us flee from this motionless movement, where gradually dialectic is changing into the logic of equilibrium. Let us reconsider the question of mankind. Let us reconsider the question of cerebral reality, and of the cerebral mass of all humanity, whose connections must be increased, whose channels must be diversified, and whose messages must be rehumanized. Come, brothers, we have far too much work to do for us to play the game of rearguard. Europe has done what she set out to do, and on the whole she has done it well. Let us stop blaming her, but let us say to her firmly that she should not make such a song and dance about it. We have no more to fear, so let us stop envying her. The third world today faces Europe like a colossal mass, whose aim should be to try to resolve the problems to which Europe has not been able to find the answers. But let us be clear. What matters is to stop talking about output and intensification and the rhythm of work. No, there is no question of a return to nature. It is simply a very concrete question of not dragging men toward mutilation, of not imposing upon the brain rhythms which very quickly obliterate it and wreck it. The pretext of catching up must not be used to push man around, to tear him away from himself or from his privacy to break, and to kill him. No, we do not want to catch up with anyone. What we want to do is to go forward all the time, night and day, 
in the company of man, in the company of all men. The caravan should not be stretched out, for in that case, each line will hardly see those who precede it, and men who no longer recognize each other meet less and less together, and talk to each other less and less. It is a question of the third world starting a new history of man, a history which will have regard to the sometimes prodigious theses which Europe has put forward, but which will also not forget Europe's crimes, of which the most horrible was committed in the heart of man, and consisted of the pathological tearing apart of his functions and the crumbling away of his unity. And in the framework of the collectivity, there were the differentiations, the stratification, and the bloodthirsty tensions fed by classes, and finally, on the immense scale of humanity, there were racial hatreds, slavery, exploitation, and above all, the bloodless genocide which consisted in the setting aside of 15,000 millions of men. So comrades, let us not pay tribute to Europe by creating states, institutions, and societies which draw their inspiration from her. Humanity is waiting for something from us other than such an imitation, which would be almost an obscene caricature. If we want to turn Africa into a new Europe, and America into a new Europe, then let us leave the destiny of our countries to Europeans. They will know how to do it better than the most gifted among us. But if we want humanity to advance a step further, if we want to bring it up to a different level than that which Europe has shown it, then we must invent and we must make discoveries. If we wish to live up to our people's expectations, we must seek the response elsewhere than in Europe. Moreover, if we wish to reply to the expectations of the people of Europe, it is no good sending them back a reflection, even an ideal reflection, of their society and their thought with which from time to time they feel immeasurably sickened. For Europe, for ourselves, and for humanity, comrades, we must turn over a new leaf. We must work out new concepts and try to set afoot a new man. And that is it for Wretched of the Earth. This has been it's been a long book and it's sometimes a pretty difficult one, especially because of how big the chapters were and how that meant I split them in a funny way, especially the earliest ones. And at times this book felt a little bit tough to read because it was, well, A, lots of upsetting things, but also B, there were times at which it was hard to get a sense of how the book's voice was arguing for or against different people. There's a lot of nuance in this book where it's quite critical of native peoples for when they take actions that put them basically in line with oppressors. And sometimes it can be hard to kind of parse what sort of argument is being made until it's fully made, which means some chapters left a big question mark off my head for a while. But I'm glad to have gone through it because that kind of nuanced criticism and in-depth look at the way forward for people who are decolonizing is really important. And obviously decolonizing your brain is like a slogan, but this book really goes into it with a whole chapter on the psychology of people being affected by 
the conflict and oppression and colonization in general and how to undo that and how like key undoing that is to the struggle because it is not simply about getting the oppressors out of where you are it's about getting the logic of the oppressor away speaking as someone who lives in ireland you can get rid of the british but if you're just going to become neoliberal monsters yourself then how much of a difference are you really making it was also funny that sometimes there were sections that were quite sarcastic in a way that was a lot of fun especially when and sometimes you're like, where is this going? And just hearing, like, people should just bring a gun into the UN because they're already committing violence at such a scale that a gun is nothing was a very funny section to read. Good moments like that really broke up the long stretches of chapter that we were reading. But that's it for The Wretched of the Earth. If you have questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, anything like that about this book, future books, etc., you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Whenever people recommend stuff or suggest different things we could do, I do note it down. I have a list of future stuff that's not especially long, but when it takes 20 weeks to read one book, you can imagine that that list is not going very fast. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find this and lots of other leftist podcasts at abnormalmapping.com. You should also look at their Patreon at patreon.com abnormalmapping and give them money. They have good stuff. They have lots of different podcasts you can also find there. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>